0: So I I have been trying, I have been trying every year to throttle down Thanksgiving in my house. Uh, I have tried to advocate for fewer dishes. I have tried to keep it simple. And no matter how hard I try, there are still leftovers for days and days and days. Which is why I'm grateful that my father-in-law comes to our house every Thanksgiving because my father-in-law is excited about leftovers. Now, I, on the other hand, there are about three or four dishes that are really good as leftovers, tacos being one of them, uh, steak is another, but there are only three or four. And for the rest, I'm like, eh, leftovers are just not my thing. So I, I, I want to ask a question, okay? So I want to ask a question of you here today by, by show of applause. How many of you love leftovers? Just a little bit of applause. Okay. Now... How many of you despise leftovers? Show of applause. Wow, this is a pro-leftover church? Okay, so fine, I get it. I understand why we put it in the fridge, because food that isn't used goes to waste. I get it. Um, But I have a friend, uh, actually I have a relative, my bad. I have a relative who... uh, is the queen of regifting, so food is one thing, right? Food is one thing and I get why we keep food and and, and use leftovers because food shouldn't go to waste, but let's talk about something that's related to that but different, regifting, right? So I have have a relative, I need to make sure I, I say just relative because you never know who's listening online, I have a relative who loves to regift and repurpose. And she is the queen of regifting. She once replaced a purse, and so she gave her worn out old purse to a family member on their birthday, wrapped as a gift. Not making that up. Socks, used socks, she will give away. She will give away kitchenware and things from her kitchen whatever it was she could re-gift it now the words that she likes to use to describe herself are frugal she is careful with her money do you know what the word the family uses cheapskate that's exactly right when her name is mentioned another family member will go cheapskate okay so uh i'm just curious. How do you feel about re-gifting? Again, by show of applause. If, if, it, if the gift is used or worn, is it okay to re-gift that? Ooh, strong, visceral reaction. What if it's in its original packaging and has never been used or worn? Is it okay to give, re-gift? Yes. Okay, all right, so you have boundaries. <laughs> that's, that's good, that's good. I had a missionary uh, kid friend when I went to college, uh, an MK friend who grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, and almost everything that he got was a hand-me-down from someone from their American supporting church back home. So the way it worked in the 1970s is if you had missionaries on the field, what you would do is as your kids grew out of clothes, you would bring those clothes to church and the church would put them in a box and then ship it to the missionaries. So here his whole life, everything in their house was always somebody's unwanted dish or clothes that somebody you knows five or six years out of date, but you know, who cares? Cause you know, you're in Columbia. I mean, what difference does it make? And so he would always get the used stuff. And I remember freshman year was a big deal because he had saved this wad of money and he wanted buddies from his floor to go with him because you know what he was gonna do? He was going to the mall and he was gonna buy some clothes that no one had ever worn in their lives. And he was so excited about that. <laughs> because he was just tired of like leftover stuff. I get it, I get it. Um, Let me ask you a question, Uh, ladies. if, If the man in your life who loves you comes home with a bouquet of flowers, that their boss, let's assume for a moment that their boss is a man, that their boss had got for they're for his wife, only his wife rejected him because they're having a spat. And so he says, Here, take those home to your missus, and you know the backstory to these flowers. Are you wowed by the gift? Yeah. A little bit. All right, that's good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. All right, whew, there's hope. There's hope. Re gifting. Regifting is this awkward thing. And sometimes if it still has value to it and it's worthwhile, that's one thing. But if it's worn and used and it's the old purse that's got worn, worn a little bit on the edges, that's something entirely different. So this is good news because this means you are able to understand God you are able to understand something very important about God today. And and that's what I wanna talk to you about, okay? We have the capacity to understand that uh, God can get crotchety when we offer him leftovers. Apparently, that really bothers God. And so, just like the people in my family, and I I I remember holidays, and I won't mention her name, but when her gift would come out, the look on everyone's face, I can't believe you gave them that. And then their name. Okay, so here's today's bottom line in case you miss it. God feels loved and valued. God feels loved and valued when we give him the best of our lives. Did you know that God has feelings, that God is emotional? Did you know that? Maybe no one's ever told you this, but so this is, you should understand that God actually is emotional God. He feels things like, Joy. He feels things like regret. He feels God has an emotional quality to him uh, because God is a personal God. Three persons, one substance, but God feels things. We know this because you can read things in Scripture and you can see the passion and emotion of it. And if that wasn't uh, good enough, we can look into the life of Jesus, right? Jesus has joy. Jesus has moments of sorrow. What's the one verse we all have memorized? Jesus wept. (laughs) Jesus wept. He was so brokenhearted that his friend Lazarus had died, okay? So, tucked away in Malachi uh, is this verse. For I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. Surely no one, no one would give God broken, used, worn out, second-rate stuff, stuff that has no value, stuff that isn't important. I don't know if you know this, but Malachi is one of the minor prophets. There are major prophets and minor prophets. Major prophets are things you name your sons, like Isaiah. Minor prophets are things you kind of avoid, like Haggai right? Malachi, Obadiah. Come here, Obadiah. Help your dad out for a minute, okay? So, you don't tend to name your kids minor prophet names. By the way, because you're living in America in 2017, if you've never read anything in the Bible, you should read the minor prophets. I'm telling you, read the minor prophets. Each one of the books is maybe four or five pages long, but you'll be reading it, and you'll be like, oh my goodness, he's got some stuff to say about America. Like just, I'm telling you, just read the Minor Prophets living where you live in 2017 and see if you don't have a whoa, that'll preach moment. Okay, so Malachi is one of these Minor Prophets. In fact, he's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi's ministry took place uh, way back when they had uh, returned. So here's a brief history of God's people, right? So they have this great kingdom, David and Solomon. The kingdom splits into two. There's Israel and Judah. And over time, Israel gets conquered by the Assyrians and then Judah gets conquered by the Babylonians and Jews are taken up in huge numbers, tens upon tens of thousands of them and relocated to other parts of uh, the region, namely Babylon and places over here. Um, And so, after about 70 years, Jews start making their way back to their homeland, and they actually rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And so, they're there, and, and this is taking place, my best guess is Malachi is somewhere around 420 to 380 BC, but it's just a guess, okay? Malachi, by the way, is the last time that God would speak to his people for 400 years. You know, the next time God would speak would be through the person and to the person of Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. So this is the last time God says anything to his people. What happens, right? I look at that and I go, what went on that would cause God to go stealth quiet for 400 years? and I think we get a bit of an answer in Malachi chapter one. So Malachi one, uh, this is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Okay, you now know everything there is to know about Malachi, woo! We don't know his parents, we don't know where he lived, we don't know anything about, we just know his name, that's it, that's all we know. Anything else is guesswork. But he says of himself, look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Man, I've heard that phrase before, haven't you? He will prepare the way before me. Mm, That's familiar. So what does Malachi have to say? That's verses two and following. I have always loved you, says the Lord, but you retort, really? How have you loved us? And the Lord replies, This is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor, Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau and devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, Really? How have you loved us? So repatriated Jews have come into Jerusalem. They've resettled Jerusalem, they've rebuilt the temple but it isn't living up to what they expected. When they were in Babylon in exile, oh, God's gonna deliver us. God's gonna, you know, they were despairing, but they had always held out hope, that messianic hope that God would fulfill the larger covenant obligations, that if they really repented, he would bring them back to the land and bless them. Well, they're back in the land, and they've rebuilt the temple, but they're just a backwater province of the Persian empire. They're nobodies. It's nowhere near the splendor of David or Solomon's kingdom and so it isn't living up to their expectations and they're kind of not real happy with God and they don't feel loved because this isn't what they expected. I'm just saying, sometimes in life, expectations can get you to feel a little crotchety. Young people, sometimes in life, expectations can get you to feel a little crotchety. So. So they're, they're there, they're commanded in Deuteronomy 6, they're supposed to love God and love their neighbor, but their love has become a little lukewarm. How do we know that? Well, the next few verses, verses six and following. The Lord of Heaven's armies says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, where is the honor and respect I deserve? You've shown contempt for my name. But how, you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? you've shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. And then you ask, how have we defiled sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to try and offer animals that are crippled and diseased? So Malachi uh, is laying out a case for what's going on. Apparently the people, so the temple is up and running and the sacrificial system is cranking forward again and people are bringing sick and lame and diseased animals to offer to God. Stuff that God clearly says, this isn't gonna cut it. In Leviticus 22, God says this, tell Aaron and his sons to be very careful with the sacred gifts that the Israelites set apart for me so they don't bring shame on my holy name. I am the Lord. You will be accepted only if your offering is a male animal with no defects. It may be a bull, a ram, or a male goat, but do not present an animal with defects because the Lord will not accept it on your behalf. Picture it for a moment, sick, diseased animals covered with sores, oozing sores that are covered with flies, and they're saying, here you go, God, and if that weren't bad enough, the priests, right, the priests are accepting them. The priests are like, yeah, sure, that'll work, that's good enough, that's good enough, Charles Swindoll has a a phrase for this. He calls it $3 worth of God. This is what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, some of us would love to buy $3 worth of God, not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like $3 worth of God, please. The people and the priests had stopped caring about what was offered. They were just going through the motions, and God was getting leftover stuff animals they didn't want, things that had little or no value. So, how does God feel about all this? Well, that's Malachi 9 and 10. Go ahead. Beg God to be merciful to you. Can you kind of hear a little bit of the passion here? Go ahead. Beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Asked the Lord of Heaven's armies. Oh, how I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. Whoo, harsh stuff, God. Whoa, come on. <laughs> Calm down. Can we talk about this? So, he malachi lays out a case for things okay and in the in the previous verse he says um in verse eight he says offer that to the persian governor go ahead take these oozing sick diseased animals and present them to the persian governor i'd love to see how that plays out god is saying the implication being you wouldn't dare do that so why are you giving me the lord of heaven's armies leftovers The second part of this section, God says how I wish one of you would shut the temple doors. So there's two things. One, God is saying in verse 10, because you're not willing to offer me every inch of your life, I'd rather shut the whole thing down. I just, forget it. I'd rather you just walk away and completely reject me. Like, forget the sacrifices. Don't even go through the motions. I don't want them. I don't want your flowers. Thank you very much. And in verse nine, Malachi is basically insisting that because they're offering these crypt disease, you know, no cost, little value things to God, God isn't listening to them. Why should he show any favor to you at all? The implied answer to that is, well, he shouldn't and won't. All right? I think this is why the Bible refers to Israel as God's lover, and the church is the bride of Christ. Think about it. When God says he's jealous for our affections, he wants us to get a picture of what that kinda hot fire passionate jealousy is like. He wants you, he wants all of you. He doesn't want you to hold anything back. He loves you, he loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. His passion for you, he's not indifferent to you. If you ever feel that God is indifferent to you, you're smoking marijuana, he doesn't feel indifferent at all. And I know what that is, it's this, okay? <laughs> so he's not indifferent, he's not indifferent. So there's a, there's a little bit more Malachi says, all right? And that's verses 11 and following. But my name is honored by people of all other nations from morning till night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies, But you, you dishonor my name with your actions, bringing contemptible food. You're saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say it's too hard to serve the Lord. And you turn up your noses at my commands, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these? Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. My name is great. Commentators will say that Malachi is either referring to future worship, or he's referring to worship that's going on in Elephantine and some other places that are far, far away from Jerusalem, where people are actually offering God their best. But clearly, God isn't pleased with what's being offered in Jerusalem. So the, in verse 13, right? Should I accept from you such offerings as these? The implied answer is no, I shouldn't and I won't. So Malachi is suggesting that the priestly prayers offered are ineffectual. It's a bleak picture. Unless the priests repent, in other words, change their attitude and change their behavior, they repent God's not going to hear them. It's like it's like uh, trying to talk to God and God going na 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 na. I can't hear you. La 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 la. I mean, it, it's almost funny to picture, but in a sense, that's what Malachi is saying here. And this part in 14, cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine. This is a special vow. Hannah in 1 Samuel offers a is trying to offer a sacrifice because she's barren and she wants to have a child and so when you would make when you needed god to really come through and deliver for you the israelites had this special vow that you would make and so that's what this is referring to that kind of special vow and he's saying you'll make special vows for my deliverance and then you'll renege you won't even fulfill your promise and it's getting god hot under the collar when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show any favor, okay? So the the thing, I look at this and I look at Malachi chapter one and I here I am, I stand, what is it, 2,500 years later and I go, are you guys nuts? He promised that you know, if you didn't fulfill the obligations of the commandments, you'd go into exile, and that if you repented, he would bring you back, and here you are, he's brought you back, like he's actually fulfilled his promises, and you're going, well, it's too hard to follow God, things are rough, oh God, here, take this, I don't want it anymore, like, really? Did you not learn the first? Like I look at their history and I go, could you not figure this out? And I'm sure people will look back at our generation and me and go, could you guys not figure this out? Look at how much God blessed you and how much God gave you and you couldn't figure this out. So in light of Malachi, in light of what we see about God's passion, about people wholeheartedly being devoted to him, I want to ask some questions. If everyone served God the way you did, would, would the world be better better? Worse or about the same? Your level of devotion, your level of generosity. If everybody who followed God had, was pegged at your level, would things get better, would they get worse, or would it be about the same? The second question, is God answering your prayers? We know from scripture that when we're walking in sin and disobedience, that that creates a barrier, right? The good news is that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he'll forgive us our sins. But we can get into a situation where in a sense our prayers become ineffectual. Um, The Old Testament and New Testament are both consistent about this. Um, And then lastly, are you bored with worship and or Christianity? And if you find yourself getting bored, I would suggest that what you need is just a glimpse of God. Uh, I got a little taste of a glimpse of God in Lowe's, right, just the other day. I've got two lawns. (laughs) Well, Max Vanderpool, wow, your mom is seven blocks away. You're blessed. He spoke the truth, okay? So if you're bored a little bit and feel like you're going through the routines, when you get a glimpse of God and who God is and how life works, you don't have to feign worship anymore, you have that gratitude in you, okay? So in light of this passage from Malachi, in light of the fact that apparently God is not so keen on leftovers, what are some things that you and I could do, right? Here's some suggestions, and these come from Stephen Cole uh, from a Precepts Bible study. First of all, give God your best in terms of cost. Um, Giving God what you don't want or you don't need isn't giving, um, remember the story of the widow's mite from last week, right? She gave all she had. So apparently God looks at things in terms of proportion, not the number. Um, remember the woman who anointed Jesus' head uh, or Jesus' feet with perfume. The perfume was expensive. Or think of David who is uh, offered a threshing floor and he says, no, in 2 Samuel, he says, no, I will not accept this. I will not offer God something that costs me Nothing. Okay? So give God your best in terms of cost. Um, Because what we give God in terms of our resources, our heart, our energy, our time, shows to a degree how much we esteem Him. And we know this in our family circles, right? If if our kids never call, they never do anything for us, there's never, you know, we're like, "Do do you love me? Hello, is this thing on? You know? So, we know what that is in familial circles. The second thing is, give God your best in terms of quality. Um, the the f- question from Malachi is, would you give these animals to the governor? The implied answer, of course, no. Um, here's the way I do this. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've, I don't, I've never preached the same sermon here twice. Uh, this is the way I do quality. You'll hear the same scriptures. You'll hear some of the same stories. For those of you that have been around 10 years or longer, God bless you and thank you. (laughs) Okay. You've heard all the stories I have to offer, but, but on any given Sunday, I will put, I will put preparation and effort into it. Some sermons fly and they're like, wow, that was amazing. And some sermons Literally, it's a thud right on the floor, and before anyone walks out the door, I'm like, well, that went nowhere, okay? So, but you won't fault me for not giving, trying to give my best, okay? There are people, at generations who do that, whether that's musicians, people across the wall working with your kids, whether that's uh, elementary school kids or teenagers, right? They're giving of themselves, and they're trying to give their best. One of the ways, I love the way, one way this played out in this church family Uh, when we were doing the Habitat project and building the ramp, we were supposed to be done at what time? What was it? Two, three, four o'clock? Right? Two o'clock. We were supposed to, we'll be done at two. And we were there till what? Some of us, six. So you had some teenagers who literally were like, no, this has to be done and this has to be done right. Wasn't their ramp, wasn't their aunt or grandma, wasn't their grandma's house. What did they have to care? They wanted to do their best and they wanted their best done, and they stayed until it was done and done right, okay? And that's, we can give God our best in terms of quality. The third thing he suggests is give God your best in terms of priority, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. When we value the things that God values, the world changes, okay? Um, One of the ways this will often play out for us is because culture is so crazy with its schedule, one of the things that we can do is when it comes to our faith commitments, when push comes to shove, we'll, we'll go with sports or this or a rehearsal or any number of things and we'll push any of the things we've committed to God off the side. And I'm not, I don't want you to go away feeling guilty. Oh, I should never play soccer on a Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. But over time, right, what do, I, what do our priorities reveal? I think, as I was, when I mapped this out in June, one of the things I worry about about us Americans is that I worry that we're exactly where they were in Malachi chapter one. Sometimes I worry that we Americans were so comfortable and so blessed that we just are kind of going through the motions. And I don't want to reach a point where God has to go silent for 400 years to get our attention. I want God to move. I had the opportunity this week to meet a young man, a friend of John Mark's. His name is Jacob. He was smart. He was capable. He was articulate. He has a lot going for him. And instead of leveraging that to make a crap ton of money, do you know what he's doing? He's over in Versailles working with drug-addicted babies and then uh, basically Hispanics. And the people in Versailles aren't particularly glad he's there because he's highlighting the fact that they have a drug problem, number one. And number two, you know, Hispanics are migrant people. They shouldn't have the same services, or at least that's some of the attitude that he's encountered. So here he is doing some very kingdom-minded things when he has all this potential, and he's trying to leverage it for God's kingdom. I hope and want for the church that the Jacob's, will be the norm and not the exception. Not all of us can do stuff like that, but I want it to be the case that most of us are giving our best to God. And I believe if the church in America started doing this, we'd turn the world upside down, we would. We'd turn the world upside down. They did it 2,000 years ago. So if anything today, if I left you with a question in the wake of Thanksgiving and leftovers, it's real simple. Am I giving God my best? And what could I do to change my priorities, my time, my resources, et cetera, so that I just started giving God the best?